0: Well, Psalm 19 is one of the most uh, foundational psalms in all the Bible. It speaks of God's revelation to us. If you know that psalm at all, you know the first half of the psalm. It even starts off, verse 1, The heavens declare the glory of God. And the whole first half speaks about just how, how God has revealed Himself in creation. The heat of the sun has gone everywhere so that no one has an excuse, but all know the eternal power and divine nature of God. And then beginning in verse 7 of Psalm 19, there's a shift and there's a change to speak about the, the revelation of how God has revealed himself in his word. Let me read these familiar verses. Psalm 19, 7 through 9. It says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and altogether righteous. A statement, six statements, one after another, just describing the Word of God and its power, its effectiveness, its purity. It says, God's Word is perfect, it is sure. It is right and pure and true. And all this to say this is that we follow a sure word. We follow the, the word of God. We can trust every single word of what we have. It leads us into truth. It leads us into Christ and His righteousness and how we can be made right and holy before him. And so I just say this, church family, read your Bibles and believe your Bibles. Trust your Bibles. Confess your sin, believe in Jesus, and you won't be disappointed. Because all who call upon the Lord will be saved, and none will be disappointed. But I want you to consider again verse 7. It says, The law of the Lord is perfect. The ESV's got it restoring the soul, the NAS has it converting the soul. Both those translations are fair within the semantic range of the Hebrew word shuv, kind of turning it back. So maybe it's, maybe it's dry and it's parched. And it needs to be revived and brought to life. Or maybe it's straying altogether and needs converting. And both of those are, are very true. And just the law of the Lord, I want you to think about it. The law of the Lord is perfect. Reviving or converting the soul. It, it brings refreshment to us. Doesn't it encourage us, help us, give us hope and reason to endure? Our fighter verse this week is Psalm 55, verse 22: "Cast your burden upon the Lord, and He will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to suffer or be—I uh, forget what—be moved." Thank you. Um, I remember one time had a, a very difficult day of ministry, and um, Yvonne just read that passage to me changed my whole perspective just in the two minutes it took to read all of Psalm 55. There's something about God's Word that that gives us refreshment and gives us hope and gives us reason to endure. But the law of the Lord also is powerful to convert the soul. The second half of verse 7 says that that the Word of God is making wise the simple. You you can take somebody who is simple and maybe you might even see there as a a fool, naïve, it can take someone like that who doesn't know the truth, who doesn't know what's going on, and the Word of God can make that person eminently wise unto salvation. It can bring back the straying one into a saving knowledge of the Lord. That's what the Word of God does. Now, as I've done my past five introductions, here is a book of Leviticus, I've pressed you to say, okay, but, but what did David say? When he wrote that, and he said, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. What What did David mean? Because when David wrote 1000 B.C., Jesus hadn't come yet, incarnate. Paul hadn't been born yet. So he wasn't talking about the New Testament. He's talking about the reliability, the perfection and trustworthiness of the Old Testament, not the New Testament. And particularly Psalm 19, verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect. Now the law is a reference to Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. The law is perfect. Converting the soul... We might even say it this way, for our purposes this morning, the book of Leviticus is perfect, reviving the soul. The book of Leviticus is perfect, converting the soul. And so I just my, my hope and prayer as we've been going through Leviticus is just that it would revive our souls and that even it would convert. Even it would transform the heart of people who are in darkness today will come in light later. So let's pray. Lord, as we think about the law of the Lord, God, sometimes it's tedious and sometimes it's difficult. It is so strange, God, but but I pray that You would take us to this foreign land of, of Israel, 1400 B.C., when You decreed how it is that You would be worshipped for the next 1400 years. God, with this, this tent and this tabernacle and this holy place and this holy of holy place, God, we're increasing intimacy with You and decreasing frequency with which we can visit. Lord, I pray that these offerings, as we've been talking about them, would would point us to Jesus as the only perfect offering, the only perfect sacrifice. That You would stir within us a, a refreshment to know that these things have all been accomplished in Christ. There's not one thing here that we have been studying these past five weeks that was not fulfilled in Jesus, not accomplished by Him, so we are not bound to any of these things. And Lord, I would pray that You would, by the power of Your Word, convert perhaps there's some children here who need to come under the conviction and knowledge of sin. Maybe some adults who have been playing church for a long time would come and see their need to cry out to Christ. As I included the weekly word this week of a testimony of a man who's been in Leviticus for ten years. And he says when he, he sings songs like these guilty hands I raise, filthy rags are all I bring to realize that in Christ Jesus it's holy hands that we can raise clothed in the fountain of Your grace, O Lord. So I would pray that we would we would see these things and that You would convert the, the straying soul to, to turn them back. Use, use Leviticus, God, I'm just trying to open up this text and apply it to our souls. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, well we come to our fifth and final offering this morning. Uh, it is the the guilt offering. We studied the burnt offering. Say it with me now. We studied the grain offering, we studied the peace offering, we studied the sin offering, and now we're coming on the, the guilt offering. The the burnt offering is that which which is entirely consumed for our sin, granting atonement there. The the grain offering and the peace offering are often following the burnt offering as an afterthought in some regards, or a thanks or a worship act to God, the grain offering to give thanks to God, the peace offering to enjoy fellowship with God. And last week as we looked at the sin offering, it's where our sin is dealt with. Specific sins committed. Specific animals sacrificed to the Lord for a transaction of sin by way of forgiveness. And now, this morning, we come to the guilt offering, the fifth and final of these. Now, all these five offerings really form the base. You'll see, once you get these five down, you'll see other, uh, um, uh, the other passages in Leviticus that just refer back to them, like you know what the burnt offering's about, and you know what the peace offering's about, and you know what the sin and guilt offerings are about. And it goes back, and sometimes one is offered, sometimes two is offered, sometimes three is offered, sometimes an offering, and, and it's kind of like this. And things change, but it's those five. Offerings that are foundational to Leviticus and really foundational for most of the offerings in the rest of the Bible as we think about sacrifice before the Lord. Now I have encouraged you to to remember that the the fifth offering is the the guilt offering in chapter 5. Really it starts halfway through chapter 5 verse 14 and ends in chapter 6 verse 7. The King James, and New King James, both of those call it the trespass offering. It's a valid translation because that's what this guilt offering is. There's been some kind of transgression of a law. There's been a disobedience and now something needs to make that up. Something needs to make restitution for that specific offense because some kind of trespass has been made. Guilt offering, though, is a very fair translation. It's very good as well because it speaks that like we have done this trespass and now we are guilty and now it resolves that so we're not guilty no longer when this is offered. So first, some facts about the guilt offering. Of all the offerings of the Bible, this is by, by far, the, of, the, of these five, the least frequently mentioned. Um, something like 40 times. You know, as opposed to, I think, the sin offering well over 150 and the burnt offering uh, in the hundreds. I, I don't have statistics here. But the, this is by far the most infrequently mentioned in the Bible. Mostly mentioned just in Leviticus and occasionally outside of there. We're going to see one of those today. Um, It also requires a ram, only a ram, not a lamb, not an ox, not a bull, not two turtle doves and pigeons, but only a ram. It requires retribution. It requires a a payment to be made. Whatever the, the cost of the offense was, take the cost and apply another 20%, which we'll see as we read through this. So just think about those facts in mind. Let's read. Leviticus chapter five, fourteen, through chapter six, verse seven. It says the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, If anyone commits a breach of faith and sins unintentionally in any of the holy things of the Lord, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation there she's kind of paying, a ram without blemish out of the flock valued in silver shekels according to the shekel of the sanctuary for a guilt offering. He shall also make restitution for what he has done amiss in the holy thing and shall add a fifth to it and give it to the priest. And the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering and he shall be forgiven. If anyone sins doing any of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done, though he did not know it. When he realizes guilt, he shall bear his iniquity. He shall bring to the priest a ram without blemish out of the flock, or its equivalent for a guilt offering, and the priest shall make atonement for him for the mistake that he made unintentionally, and he shall be forgiven. It is a guilt offering. He has indeed incurred guilt before the Lord. Chapter 6, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, If anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor in a matter of deposit or security or through robbery, or if he has oppressed his neighbor or has found something lost and lied about it, swearing falsely, in any of these things that the people do and sin thereby, if he has sinned and he has realized his guilt and will restore what he took by robbery or what he got by oppression or the deposit that was committed to him or the lost thing that he found, or anything about which he has sworn falsely, he shall restore it in full and add a fifth to it and give it to him to whom it belongs on the day he realizes his guilt. And he shall bring to the priest as his compensation to the Lord a ram without blemish out of the flock or its equivalent for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord and he shall be forgiven for any of the things that one may do and thereby become guilty." There's a lot of stuff going on there. Um, let me just say this passage divides in three, um, according to the particular sin that was, that, that took place, that needs to have a sacrifice offered. Verse 15: If anyone commits a breach of faith and sins unintentionally in the things, in the holy things of the Lord. Or, or the second one comes in verse 15: If anyone sins, doing any of the things that by the Lord's commandment ought not to be done. Uh, Or the third sin, right? Really, chapter six, verse two and following. If anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his his neighbor in a matter of deposit or security, or through robbery, if he's oppressed his neighbor, found something lost and lied about it, swearing falsely. In any of these things, all that people do and sin thereby. So it's just like these different sins. And we'll towards the end of my message today, we'll talk about that. I want to talk about guilt first, and then we'll look at each of these three sins. But if any of these sins take place. Then you need to offer the sacrifice of so the guilt offering. It's much like the other sacrifices that are offered. Right? The animal is brought before the priest. You lay your hand on the animal. You kill the animal, you give it to the priest. And in this case of the guilt offering, again, it's only the fat that's burned um, upon the altar. It goes up in smoke. The priest gets the meat of this. Can can take it there. You can read about those details in Leviticus seven, one through ten, talks about what the priest is supposed to do with that. But like all the other sacrifices, it, it goes there. But if anything, the message coming out of these verses is this is that if you're guilty, there's a way to remove your guilt. There's a way to resolve your sin before the Lord and before others. Now there are, are people, you know, many people who live in perpetual and constant guilt. Live with regret. Live with a sense they've sinned and they've messed up. They're too far gone. They can't make it right. Either with God or with others, this drives many people to suicide because life is so messed up they can't ever get it back. And so, they, how many, how many um, criminals find themselves in jail, committing heinous crimes, know that they're going to either face the death penalty or life in prison and kill themselves instead? How many CEOs of major firms, when they've been found out with deception and fraud, have killed themselves jumping off of buildings or jumping into rivers or off of bridges or hanging themselves. It's just a lot. Because the sin's so big, they don't think they can be forgiven. The message of, of this passage, though, is if you sin, you can be forgiven. But guilt haunts people. And now, I'm no Shakespearean scholar, but when I think about guilt, one scene comes into mind. I think about Hamlet. I think about shortly after he killed King Duncan. And, and we find him in Act 2, Scene 2. With his, with his hand that is soaked in blood. And he's, he's thinking about how is he gonna wash his hand that is soaked in blood because that is the guilt of having killed King Duncan. What's he gonna do it? And he says this. What hands are here? Ha, they pluck out mine eyes. Will all great Neptune's ocean wash this blood clean from my hand? No, this hand will rather the multitudinous seas incarnadine, making the green one red. Whatever that means. Here, let me interpret it for you. I have such guilt on my hand. Where am I going to wash it? If I put it in the sea, I'm going to turn the green sea red because my hand is so covered with guilt that the blood from here is going to seep all the way into the ocean and just fill it red with blood. So deeply he felt his grief and his guilt. And in fact, just the piercing depth of guilt becomes a a predominant theme throughout Macbeth. And and you see this, that that he's visited by the the ghost, I don't know how to pronounce this guy's name, Banquo, who he murdered to protect his secret. When when, when he murdered... um, King Duncan, there was someone else who saw it and so he killed, I think, a couple other guys. And this ghost keeps appearing to him again, haunting him of this deed that he did. And Lady Macbeth, she had haunting dreams. Eventually, she committed suicide because of her great guilt being accomplice with her husband in the murder of the king. And and there are people that live with guilt. Things that they did so long ago that plagues them every day of their lives. Like Macbeth, they have blood-stained hand, and they can't get it clean, and they try and they try and they try, and they try through various means, and it just can't be removed. The message here, though, is that you can get it clean. Or to use another metaphor of burden of sin, I think about John Bunyan and Christian Pilgrim's Progress. He, he used the, the imagery of a, of a, of a, um, a burden. In fact, I've got that on the children's notes. You guys have seen that before. I hope you've read that book. If you haven't read that book, repent and read that book. It's the second most read book in the world, second to uh, the Bible. Um, It goes very easy. Read it to your kids. Christian is there and he's got this big burden on his back. And those who have drawn it artistically make this burden like big and, and huge, bigger than any um, through hiker would ever have this big backpack on the back of their back. Just just huge and abundant. And Christian's got to lean over because the weight of this burden is so great. And he's trying to figure out how he can get this burden off his back. And what's the burden? The, the burden is the, the guilt of his sin just pressing down upon him. The opening of Pilgrim's Progress starts like this Bunyan writes As I walked through the wilderness of this world and I lighted upon a certain place, Where there was a den and I laid me down in that place to sleep and as I slept I dreamed a dream and I dreamed and behold I saw a man clothed with rags standing in a certain place with his face from his own house right, just looking and, and a book in his hand and a great burden on his back and I looked and saw him open the book and read therein. As he read, he wept and trembled and not being able any longer to contain, he broke out with a lamentable cry saying, What shall I do? Right, there's this burden on his back and he's trying to get this guilt off of him. He's trying to get this weight of sin off of him. And wherever he went, that burden was, was with him. He sought all he could do in his power to rid himself of the burden of this sin like Macbeth trying to wash his hands. And the message of this text this morning is you can have your burden removed from your back. Now, in the case of, of sin and burdens and blood-stained hands, sometimes the guilt from that is a very good thing. Don't despise this always bad. No, it can be a very good thing because it can be the very thing that leads you to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Because a burden on your back... Or acknowledging a a redness in your hands can be like a a warning light on your dashboard which says there's something very wrong with your car, right? When the engine light goes on. There's something wrong with your car. You need to check it out. Maybe it's not going to get you now, but there's going to be a day where you're going to try to start your car and your engine's been ground together or it's needed new oil or something. Something awaits you if you don't deal with this problem. Deal with this problem, Christian, his burden led him to Calvary, where, if you remember this story, his burden falls off and rolls into the tomb, the sepulcher, and, and never appears again. That's when he's clothed in new righteousness. He was in filthy rags and he's clothed in new righteousness and then walks his days in new righteousness. In a similar way, it was guilt that led Martin Luther to the gospel. Before his conversion, he was plagued by guilt and he did everything to rid himself of his guilt. In fact, I want to read from R.C. Sproul's most excellent book, The Holiness of God. Okay. If you're looking for a book to read, this is a great Christian book to read, The Holiness of God. Luther writes, he's always writing about Luther and the insanity of Luther, basically, it's the guilt of Luther that, that came upon him that then led him to Christ. So I just told you the punchline. But here's, here's what it says Luther says, I was a good monk and I kept the rule of my order so strictly. That I may say that if ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. All my brothers in the monastery who knew me will bear that out. If I had kept on any longer, I should have killed myself with vigils and prayers and reading and other work. So zealous was he. And then, R.C. Sproul then writes, Confession was a requirement for these monks, but not daily. The requirement was that all one's sins be confessed. Luther could not go a day without sinning, so he felt necessary to go to the confessional every day seeking absolution. Confession was a regular part of the monastic life. The other brothers came regularly for their confessors and said, Father, I have sinned. Last night I stayed up after lights lights out and read my Bible with a candle. Or yesterday at lunchtime I coveted Brother Philip's potato salad. I mean, and then Archie Sproul says, well, how much trouble can you really get in a monastery? That's what He says, The father confessor would hear the confession, grant priestly absolution, and assign a small penance to be performed. That was it. The whole transaction only took a few minutes, but not so with Brother Luther. He was driving his father confessor to distraction. Luther was not satisfied with a brief recitation of his sins. He wanted to make sure that no sin in his life was left unconfessed. He entered the confessional and stayed for hours every day. On one occasion, he spent six hours confessing the sins that he committed that last day. The superiors of the monastery began to to wonder about Luther. They considered the possibility that he was a gold-bricker preferring to spend his time in the waking hours in the confessional to studying and performing his other tasks. And concern arose that perhaps he was mentally unbalanced, rapidly moving to serious psychosis. His mentor, Staupitz finally grew angry and scolded Luther. Look here, he said, if you expect Christ to forgive you, come in with something to forgive. Parasite or blasphemy, adultery, instead of these picadillos, these small sins. Man, God is not angry with you. You are angry with God. Don't you know that God commands you to hope? And here it is. It's the aspect of Luther that most brought about the verdict of insanity. The man was radically abnormal. His guilt complex was like anyone, unlike anyone's before him. He was so morbid in his guilt, so disturbed in his emotions, he could no longer function as a normal human being. If you know the story of Martin Luther, then, that eventually drove him to Jesus, where alone his sins could be forgiven. And so I say this burden of guilt is not... Not a bad thing. It can be a good thing because it, it drove Luther to say it's not my monkery. It's not my, my good prayers and my good works and my Bible reading. It's not my, my, my whipping of myself and, and sleeping without a blanket and, and sleeping on the cold stone to, to like make up for my sins. No, it was only to be found in the cross of Christ. I mean, He even made a pilgrimage to Rome. So he could walk up the the stairs, I think it's St. Peter's Basilica, on his knees praying repentance, just trying to get righteous with God. And his guilt from his sin led him to Christ. So guilt, don't despise guilt. Guilt can be a very good thing, especially in people who don't know Jesus. But it may be the case that a burden of sin is a very bad thing as well. Because if you've trusted in Christ... And he has forgiven your sin, but you still, still insist upon having this burden on your back? Even when God has forgiven that sin, that, that burden, you know, that, that Bunyan had that rolled into the sepulchre. Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let me get that sin back. Let me let me put that here. And God says, No, it's forgiven. It's done. It's wiped away, and you say, No, no, I still can't I still can't care of that. What what you're doing is your unbelief. When you take that sin and put it right back on your burden, you don't believe the promise of the Gospel. You're trying to make right what was wrong, but Jesus already made it right. But you're saying, oh, I don't believe he made it right. I need to make it right another way through some other kind of effort. And that's bad guilt. You failed to believe that His sacrifice on the cross paid for all your sins, Colossians 2.14. The Bible tells us that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That means we stand before God. What does no condemnation mean? To stand before God free. Who are not condemned in any way. We are absolved of our sin. And through faith in Christ, there's no more guilt to be felt. Now Certainly there's repentance and sorrow and confession over sin. But as you confess your sin to the Lord and you make it right with others, when when that has been confessed and made right, there's no room anymore to be guilty about that sin or to feel guilty. We're set free in Christ. What about that hymn we sang? When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. What do I do? Help me. Upward, I look. And I see Him there who made an end to all my sin. That's what we're talking about here. Satan's ploy is to stir the feelings of guilt within you, to say, oh, your sin's so bad, you're not forgiven. And believers in Jesus, look to the cross and be reminded again of of the utter and complete forgiveness that we have in Jesus Christ at the cross. You received it, right? You haven't earned it. You received it by grace through faith in Christ. I just say, let's live guilt free. There's no reason to live burdened by, by see that's how Paul lived. He told Felix, I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Right? That's not saying we're living sinlessly. That's not saying that we're we're faire about our life, right? If anything, Leviticus is is pushing us on to holiness, right? We're seeking and striving to holiness. But where we where we lack, it's confessed. Where we don't even know we lack, we just trust God that's gonna. Gonna forgive that, and we just say we are seeking to live rightly before you, O oh Lord. I know I'm bringing filthy rags, but clean hands and pure hearts is what we're bringing to you because you've sanctified us in Christ. So that's the only way to have a clear conscience before God is not to live sinlessly, but in your sin to confess that sin and make it right with God. He wrote to Timothy, telling him how he serves the Lord always with a clear conscience. It's a requirement of being a deacon. First Timothy three speaks about having a clear conscience. All leaders, we need to have clear consciences. It's how we need to be as Christians have clear consciences because what we have, we've confessed and it's cleansed, it's done away with. We don't put it on our back again. Or as Keith and Christian, uh, Keith Getty and Stuart Townend wrote this one No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I'll stand. Let's stand in the power of Christ, the glory of the gospel. Guilt free. Well, it's interesting here, we think about Leviticus now, we come back to Leviticus after that first point maybe about guilt. The Jews didn't have the power of Christ in those days. They didn't have the cross of Christ to look back upon. They had sacrifices to give. But in giving these sacrifices, they experience forgiveness. Look at verse 16. It says, And the priest shall make atonement with him with the ram for the guilt offering, and he shall be forgiven. Look at chapter 5, verse 18. He will be forgiven. Verse 19, right? It's a guilt offering. He has indeed incurred guilt before the Lord. But, verse 18, he shall be forgiven. Or chapter 6, verse 7. He shall be forgiven of all the things that one might do and thereby become guilty. So they knew forgiveness. They didn't understand totally how that came about in Jesus thousands of years later. But they were forgiven. But here's what they did. They had to bring an offering. So let's look at my first offense. I'm just calling it holy things because that's what we see there in verse 15. If anyone commits a breach of faith and sins unintentionally in any of the holy things of the Lord... He shall bring to the Lord, as his compensation, a ram without blemish of the flock, valued in silver shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, for a guilt offering. So if he, he commits a sin with his holy things, he shall bring this lamb. And it says then that he shall, on top of bringing this ram, shall also make restitution for what he has done amiss in the holy thing, and shall add a fifth to it and give it to the priest, and the priest shall make atonement for him. With the ram of the guilt offering, he shall be forgiven." Here we have sins against the holy things of the Lord. Now you got to say, okay, what, what's that talking about? Well, we don't know exactly, but we can surmise and think about it. It probably has to do with something about what you gave to the priest or interacting with the priest somehow, something that, that should have been given. Maybe it refers to animals that came with a blemish. Right, a, a cow with a deformed eye, maybe, or with a, a skin eczema, and, and you, you brought it and didn't realize it, or you, you realized it and hid it from the priest because uh, you got it and you kind of, you know, the right eye's bad, so the cow is looking this way when you sacrifice it. and That's a holy thing to the Lord that was brought contrary to God's commands. Or, or maybe the meal offering, you forgot the salt. The salt always has to be there in the meal offering. You remember that? Leviticus chapter 2. Um, or maybe it could be in the failure of giving priests the proper due because you know the, the fat was to be burned and then the priest was to have some and the fellowship offering you're all supposed to share. with. But, but maybe it's not giving everything to the priest. Maybe it's holding back something for yourself. That would be something with a holy thing. Or maybe gasp, you ate the fat of one of the sacrifices. Or, or maybe everything didn't burn on the, on the burnt offering. Or maybe you failed to present your first fruit offerings, or you made a vow and didn't keep your vow. Something, something of, that, of those, of those things that we deal with the holy things, the things that are, are sacrificed. When any of those things took place, restitution had to be made. There was a ram that was sacrificed, and then you added a fifth to it. In other words, right? If you sin, restore what you took. Right? The the priest need to get his, give him what he what you took, what he should have had. When it's an ox, you make it. Make sure it's a pure ox and sacrifice another ox, which is a pure ox. Or, you know, if um, didn't have salt, then restore it and give him some bread with the salt. And then you add a fifth on top of that just to make the restitution right. Now, how exactly you you know how much a fifth actually is, I, I have no idea. It just the principle is here is that you you give and then you... You add a fifth to it. In chapter 27, we'll see a bunch of valuations about how much things are worth. Um, so maybe it was some about that. We get a, a hint to hear about the, va- the flock valued in silver shekels, according to the, sexual, the shekel of the sanctuary. That's in verse 15. So there's, there's a value of these things. I'm not sure. But, but the spirit of that took place with Zacchaeus. Remember when he, Jesus came into his house and Zacchaeus said, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. If I have defrauded anyone, I will restore it fourfold. Now, I'm going to make restitution, but I'm going to make restitution 400%. Now, that's way beyond what God was requiring here in, in Leviticus chapter 5 with the guilt offering. It was only 20% was required, but Zacchaeus was so overflowing, he said 400%. It's the same idea. His generosity, entirely van- voluntary. This was mandatory, but you can see the principle at work. If I've defrauded anyone, I'm going to make it right and return to them and I'm going to increase what they lacked. You know, I, I was, was really encouraged by S. Lewis Johnson's exposition of this passage when he <clears throat> tried to apply it to Jesus. I don't know if this is really to Jesus or not, but but this helps to see a little bit about the work of Christ. And so, in that sense, I can, I can bring it out here. He, he said this, is that uh, S. Lewis Johnson talked about how Um, the cross did more than simply restore us to where Adam was. I mean, you you think about it. When Adam sinned, he brought the world into sin. When Christ came, he undid everything that Adam did. But more. And here's where S. S. Lewis Johnson would kind of add the fifth. See, Christ's sacrifice didn't just restore us to Eden. It secured us in heaven. And we stand better today Then Adam stood in the garden. Though Adam was perfect, he still could sin and plunge the world into sin. And though we are sinners, yet we are secure to be someday in our our heavenly kingdom. We will never forfeit the heavenly inheritance that awaits us. So you have a question. Would you rather be perfect with Adam in the garden? Or would you rather be imperfect sinner in the church? There's no question. You're going to be an imperfect sinner in the church who believes in Christ and then is justified and will get more than Adam ever had because Christ didn't just restore us to Adam's state. He made it far better for us. And you can think about this in terms of the double imputation. Right? When... When Christ died, it's not that he, he died for our sins. It's not like He just... He, before before we sinned, we, we weren't a sinner. Okay, let's just take some sin, a, a thief, right? A theft, right? Before you stole that item, you were righteous, and then you stole that thing, and now you've become a sinner. Christ did more than just forgive that sin to restore you to the previous state of, well, I haven't stolen yet. but But Christ also imputed His righteousness to us so that... Um, we're not just restored to a pre-sin, not-sin state as neutral, but He also, having done nothing good or bad, but He also imputed righteousness so that we have more to our credit. Right? In other words, we have the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, and now it's not only that we are innocent of our crime, we are meritorious of having never done that before. So that we get in heaven based upon the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us, we get into heaven based on reward. Not of what we've done, but of what Christ done. Second Corinthians five twenty one. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus took the sin and we got Christ's righteousness. That's that's over and above and beyond. And that's S. Lewis Johnson just took that part of the fifth. And that this ministered to my soul and I trust minister to you. Just it's not it's not just restored, it's restored better. They're the holy things. Well, let's, let's look secondly, verses 17 through 19, at the holy procedures is what I'm calling them. Verse 17, if anyone sins doing any of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done, though he did not know it, then realizes guilt, he shall bear his iniquity. Now, when we read here the Lord's commandments, I don't think the idea here is the Ten Commandments. A breach of the Ten Commandments isn't the idea here of the, the guilt offering. The Ten Commandments breaking that is probably more the, the sin offering or the burnt offering. But the idea here, the commandments of God, is probably the commandments that, that Leviticus gave concerning these sacrifices. It's the context, right? A break in protocol. I mean, one of the things that Ivana's talked to me quite a bit about in our study of Leviticus, how, how confusing is this law code? It's a little bit like our tax code. Right? The American tax code, which is, you know, it's difficult to understand. It's hard. That's what guys like Lance are for, right? To understand that whole thing. Um, it's hard. It's hard stuff. Okay, and the law code can be a little bit like that. And how easily one could fail to follow everything exactly according to standards. And and however you fail, when you come to realize it, the call, the guilt offering, those to make it right, to establish it being right. Offer the ram without blemish to the priest and pay back the twenty percent. Except what's interesting here is there's no twenty percent to pay back. And I think what's going on here is that, you know, this second sacrifice might be for something that's a little more difficult to figure out what exactly 20% is. Like, how, how do you measure damage done when you don't lay your hand upon the sacrifice, right? You've, you've done this sacrifice, but that you say, oh, I forgot to lay my hand on the sacrifice. God just doesn't say, "Ah, oh, don't worry about it. No, God says you, you didn't do according to all the commands I commanded. You bring this ram and then offer up this ram and then that will... Make restitution for. You don't need to add a fifth, because how do you add a fifth to not laying your hand? Or, h- how do you measure damage done when you, you don't get both kidneys upon the burnt altar, but you realize you took your, your, uh, scraps out to the ash heap to burn them? The, oh, there's a kidney right here, and it's already, it's too late, because it's in the fire. You're like, oh, I didn't, I didn't burn all the kidneys, all the fat on the fire. I burned some of it out here. How do you, how do you evaluate that? How do you, I don't know. Maybe it's because there's no profit in these manners. You don't gain anything by neglecting to place your hand upon the animal, right? You don't gain when when things are burnt up in different places. But if you hold some back from the priest and eat it yourself, you gain, right? Or 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 if you whatever mess up, you can be gain in some other ways. And so there's an easy way, twenty percent. Uh, you know what? I have no idea how all this works, but I'm just saying that God is very particular about his, his worship. He gave his word to be followed word by word, every bit of it, and provisions were made when things weren't followed quite exactly. He doesn't speak in vain. He expects his word to be obeyed and obeyed fully. Now, the only reason we don't have to follow these things because of Christ. But in some regards, right, and Christ covers all of that and our, our faith can even be somewhat defective. We just we believe in Jesus. We don't have to know all the theology behind it. We just need to trust Him and, and we'll learn about the theology of Christ. We learn about our atonement and, and everything here. But But Jesus is our guilt offering, so we don't have to do these offerings. In fact, this is one of the places where guilt offering is. So turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 53. One of the I, I can't remember like one of the seven, seven times outside of the Book of Leviticus that guilt offering occurs. Maybe it's ten, maybe it's five. I, I can't remember. It's in Ezekiel some Ezekiel forty to forty eight, but it's not very much. But it does come here in Isaiah fifty three. Now this is um, of course this is talking about the suffering servant, applied exactly to Jesus. You see these things. Um, Verse 5 He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With His wounds we are healed. Verse 4 Surely our griefs He bore, He carried our sorrows, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Verse 7 He was oppressed and afflicted, yet He did not open His mouth, like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent for His shears, so He did not open His mouth. This is prophetic of Christ. Israel in the future looking back at what they did to their Messiah. But Isaiah is saying that this is what's going to happen with the Messiah. But this is a lament of what's happening. And we get to verse 10 where it talks about the guilt offering. Yet, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes, here it is, an offering for guilt. It should be guilt offering there. He shall see His offspring and He shall prolong His days and the will of the Lord shall prosper in His hand. Now catch what verse 10 is saying. Verse 10 says that that God the Father crushed the Son. You say, who was responsible for the death of Jesus? Well, certainly the Romans were because they actually put put the sword in Him. They actually nailed Him to the cross. But the Jews were because the Jews rejected Him and handed Him over. The Gentiles certainly had a hand in that as well, but ultimately it was God Himself who crushed Jesus. It was God Himself who put Him to grief. That which was decreed before the world ever came into existence, He brought about on Calvary, sending Jesus to the cross. According to His predetermined and sovereign plan, Acts chapter 4. Jesus in the garden pleaded this very language that, that God would... Allow Him to avoid the cross. My Father, if it possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. And what did God will? God willed to crush His Son. Pay the penalty for our sin upon the cross. And in so doing, God the Father put His Son to grief. Suffering a cruel death and even abandoning His Son. Even pouring out our sin upon His shoulders. And Jesus became an offering for guilt. He became our guilt offering. He righted every wrong. We no longer need a guilt offering because Jesus has become our perfect guilt offering. Full retribution has been made to the Lord. And I say this, praise be to God, right? Now that doesn't mean that the principle of the guilt offering doesn't apply to us today because I think it does. This whole idea of if there's a wrong, make it right however you can. Add a fifth. If appropriate, let's turn back to Leviticus. Let's look at this last, this last section of sin. Chapter 6, 1-7. through seven. We've seen holy things. We've seen holy procedures. And now we, I just put it against your neighbor. I mean, that, that's the best I, I could do. It's just speaking about These are talking about sins that you commit against others, right? Failing to love your neighbor as yourself. The, these are very, um, very human to human sins, if you will. Verse 2. Just consider what kind of sins these are. If anyone commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor in a matter of deposit or security or through robbery. In other words, he's stolen money. This security or deposit. Or a robbery. He's stolen things. Or if he has oppressed his neighbor, meaning that he's used his position of authority so as to, to oppress someone. Or he's found something lost and lied about it. No, that's always been mine, right? Finding something and and deceiving and manipulating there. Or swearing falsely. Like, Like promising that this is the case when it really wasn't the case. Caught in this web of lies. In any of these things that people do and sin thereby, right? If he has sinned and has realized his guilt and will restore what he took by robbery... Or what he's got by possession, or deposit what was committed to him, or that lost thing that he found, or anything about which he has sworn falsely, here it is. He shall restore it in full and add a fifth to it and give it to him to whom it belongs on the day he realizes his guilt. Now, earlier in my message, I, I, I mentioned two types of guilt, right? There's good guilt, and there was bad guilt. And then I want to add like a third category here, which for the sake of the good and the bad, what's a good word that goes with good and bad? The good, bad, and the ugly. We'll just call it ugly sin. I don't even know. Is that a movie? I don't even know. Maybe it's a bad movie. Maybe I shouldn't even refer to it. I don't even know. But I just know the good, the bad, and the ugly. We're going to call this ugly sin. You might call this um, believer sin. You might call this convicting guilt. But good guilt, right, is that that unbelievers experience. John... 16 verse 8 says the spirit of truth will come and convict the world of sin, righteousness, and the judgment to come. Bad guilt is a guilt that believers experience when they've confessed their sins to the Lord and they bring their guilt back upon it. It's bad because they don't believe the promises of God. But there is a third category I'm calling whatever this ugly guilt because it really is ugly. This is the, the guilt that believers in Christ feel as they refuse to confess their sin. So it may be that you're a believer in Christ and that, that the Holy Spirit's convicting work is heavy upon your soul. And I say that's ugly because all you need to do is confess it and make it right. And it's so easy. And it's so hard. Maybe this sin, I'm just going to go through the categories here, is a, is a sin between you and another person. Right? Maybe you have deceived some person from something. Maybe you have got a deposit and haven't haven't paid that back. Maybe you've promised, oh yeah, I'll pay you back, and you've never never paid that back. Maybe you need to write a check and send it in the mail. I've gotten checks like that before. Um, I remember one guy was involved in kind of a book study, and I said, whatever, it's ten dollars for this book, and he never paid, got let, didn't didn't come to our church really, and then it was laughed. And I remember he went to some kind of conference, was convicted, maybe in a message something like this, and. All I got was this check like ten dollars. Really low says, Steve, I just realized I never paid you for that book. I'm like I never it's not like I was holding it against him. I mean I books have wings and I just I give books out because that's gonna help you all and I lose on the books and that's okay and I don't I'm not looking for that. But I just kinda came back and it was this kind of convicting thing that he had some kind of deposit and he, he didn't he didn't pay back. Or robbery, you got something that's not yours. It he's taken, maybe that's time to return that. Or oppression. Maybe there's some oppression going on. You're using your position of authority and just maybe you need to make that right. Or lying in some some way. Maybe you're caught in this web of lies. You made one lie and one lie leads to another lie to keep the story straight. And then it leads to another lie and maybe you're caught in this web of lies. I don't know. I just think of a couple. I just thought of two instances of these things where I've had ugly guilt in my life. I remember early in our marriage... Uh, we didn't have a lot of money, and I had some software illegally on my machine, my computer, and, and it was helpful. Uh, I can't even remember what the software was. I think maybe it was the, the uh, office suite, Office 95. Maybe I'd got it from work, but didn't have permission or something like that. And I remember I, I just suppressed that we need to pay for that, and it just gnawed it just on me. It just gnawed on me. And, and I, I remember, I don't know, this was months, it kind of gnawed on me, and uh I remember coming to you, Yvonne. I don't, you probably don't even remember that software. You do remember, okay? Because <laughs> we were poor back then, right? And and uh, that kind of kind of hurt a little bit. And so we purchased the software. And I remember once we purchased that software, we had it legally, we had the license, and like it's like, whoo, clear conscience. I remember months before I was baptized, I just had a deep conviction. That I needed to be baptized and walk obediently. I was baptized as a, as a child, sprinkled, but never immersed. And I just—I was in seminary at the time, studying the Bible, and I'd never been baptized before. And I'm thinking, like, hmm. And it just gnawed on me, and gnawed on me. And um, I, I delayed, and I thought about it, and I thought about it, and oh, how freeing it was when then I was baptized. Just to confess my sin before Christ and walk through the waters of baptism together. That that was just something that was convicting me. Now Maybe God's got His hand on you. Some ugly, ugly sin. Uh, ugly guilt. Whether you're, you're deceiving, whether you've stolen something. And God is God is pretty exact. I mean, think about this: that in this sacrifice, it's only the ram. It, it doesn't say. Um, well, two turtle doves or two pigeons, or just throw some bread at this thing. Now, this is a ram's pretty big. Okay, it's not maybe not as big as a cow, maybe not as expensive as a cow, but it's still pretty big. Now, I have to pay it back, but you got to have this ram come as well, and you got to pay a fifth on top of that. God is serious about sin. Maybe you've cheated someone, maybe a store. I remember hearing stories of, of pastors that talk about, um, you know, you go to the cash register and somehow the lady makes a mistake, lady or the man or whatever, makes a mistake, and you've got four of them, and she charged you for only three. And you can do two things at moment. You can say, oh, I got out and kind of put it in the pocket, and just say, hey, I, got, I, I, I nabbed that. If you're sensitive... Pay the extra $3. Pay the extra $20. It's going to come back to you in terms of weight of guilt, perhaps, if you have a sensitive sin. As I'm hoping so, you shall be holy. If it, if it comes back to you with a sensitivity, like, oh, that's not right. Just pay it. Just say, oh, I'm sorry. I had four of those. You only had three. And you'll, you'll, you'll be way better off and you won't have this ugly guilt upon your soul than trying to go back and whatever, try to pay, pay the store for something they missed. It doesn't... It doesn't really make sense. It's hard. So whatever, whatever there is, and I just—I want to just close my message now. Let's let's power heads, close our eyes. Just think about guilt. Maybe you got this ugly guilt. That that of course it's—it's it's just a matter of confessing it to the Lord. How easy it is, and yet how hard it is. I remember speaking with a man a, a decade ago who cheated to get through high school and was studying the scriptures and in seminary and years, years later, went back and talked with the school about how he'd cheated. And of course, the school didn't do anything. It just forgave it and went on their way and said, what a strange man that was, but making it right. And if there's there's things in your soul that are are just wrong, I would plead with you and encourage you to repent of those wrongs and to make them right not not to earn anything but just to just to have a clear conscience before the lord lord because that's what that's what we desire to have clear conscience before you to walk in in holiness and purity and righteousness in a way that God, there's, there's no accusation that can come upon us. Certainly, we're sinners, but we've made that right. We've confessed it, and to the best of our ability, have have repaid, have made better, have made restitution where it could be made. And and Lord, even as Psalm 15 says, the righteous man swears to his own hurt. It can hurt sometimes. God, would pray you'd help us be willing to go through the hurt. God, help us to to know what righteousness is. God thank you for Jesus, who is our is our guilt offering and help us, O oh Lord, to be sensitive to sin and to walk righteously before you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.